Now, the first reading this morning is from Psalm 46, 1 to 11, which is in page 547 of the Old Testament in the Pew Bibles. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted amongst the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. This morning's second reading from Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. In the Pew Bibles, on page 41 of the New Testament. Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him in their boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great gale arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray, shall we? Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you. Great. Well, the story of Jesus calming the storm is certainly for me, one of the most memorable, yet most perplexing miracle stories in the Bible. I mean, what is it all about? Seriously. I mean, when we look at Jesus' miracles, it's perhaps easier for us to understand the interventions he makes with people, like healings, 
deliverance, bringing to life. After all, we can explain those signs as what we call the inbreaking of the kingdom. One day we hope and pray, if you're anything like me, that one day there will be no death and there will be no sickness and there will be no suffering when creation is finally renewed. And sometimes, yes, we do experience that in the here and now, these signs of the kingdom. But control over the elements, calming the storm, walking on the water, what's that got to do with Jesus' ministry? What's that got to do with the kingdom of God? Well, that's what we're considering for a few minutes this morning. I should say straight away, there's some very odd things in this story. I don't know if you've ever noticed them. Firstly, why does Jesus seem to criticize the poor old disciples here? Surely he should have been proud of them. You know, when I was in Sunday school, we used to sing that song, When the Road is Rough and Steep, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know that one? Surely, you know, they went to Jesus. They were in trouble, and yet he has some words of critique for them. Odd. But hang about, what's Jesus doing being asleep in the first place here? Being tired is one thing, but but having 40 winks through a life-threatening storm, you know, that's something else. This is a little boat, isn't it? We're not talking about an ocean liner here. Oh, waiter, could you leave that ice sculpture for a second and knock on the door of Jesus' cabin and ask him to look out of the porthole, there's a good sport? No, this is a tiny little boat. The boat was being tossed up and down, and there he is having a nap. Now, Jesus must have taken naps regularly. He was a very busy man, but the gospel writers rarely record Jesus sleeping. Why here? Why now? Why in this storm? Why do they have to go and wake him up right now? Even with his Son of God serenity, Surely he would have woken up. Another oddity. It would be one thing if a bunch of strangers witnessed Jesus calming the storm and immediately asking themselves, whoa, who is this guy? But the disciples who knew him intimately, who'd seen what he'd been up to, why why was it this miracle, this particular miracle, which makes them say to themselves, who is this man? Who is he? Well, for us to understand that question and this reaction, we we do need to look a little bit more into the background of this story and know a little bit more about the ancient Hebrews. They were not a seafaring nation like the Phoenicians or like us, if you want to bring it up to date. No, the Hebrews were a coastal nation who never had a navy. They didn't. For for ancient Israel, unlike the UK, having a set of working aircraft carriers was not really on the agenda. They didn't really have an interest in that kind of thing, despite living by the sea. Why, you might ask yourselves. Well, for Israel, the sea didn't represent an opportunity for them. It didn't represent the opportunity to have a blue water navy or to engage in trade. The reverse was true. Can you go to the next slide, please? This has stopped working. Thank you. The reverse was true. No. The waters represented chaos. A dark place. A place to be feared. 
The sea for the ancient Hebrews was the enemy. Not sure? Well, there's a quote for you, Isaiah 27. In reference to the day of the Lord, Isaiah says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce and great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the great serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. If you were an Israelite, a very good reason not to take to the sea was that it was the domain of the Leviathan, the sea monster. I'm not joking. Now, the Loch Ness monster might be a stretch for our imagination, but for an Israelite, completely reasonable. Job 41 is dedicating to describing the Leviathan. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook, he asks, or tie down his tongue with a rope, he asks? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The answer, of course, rhetorically being no. Why, Job 41.9 says, any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. Whoa. Fear of the sea. Fear of the deep. An ultimate primal fear, if you like. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside would not have been one of their favorite songs. Are we clear? Next slide, please. The good news, of course, to go alongside this, is that the other part of biblical testimony tells us, though, that God is mightier than the sea monster and fear of the deep. Where does it say that? Psalm 93, there's a good one for you. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So there's an equal testimony from the Old Testament. Even though Leviathan and his, and his lair are to be feared, God is of an altogether greater power even over the sea. And we see that quite a bit in Scripture too. Now, while I'm sure that Simon has more erudite comments on this passage in particular, and I'm going to do a little revelation Reference here. I know I do this with sort of slight tentativeness. You've got a Revelation specialist in the room. One of the most fascinating verses for me is Revelation 21, verse 1, which starts to describe the ultimate victory of God. What does the author write in there, along with all of the other imagery? It says, there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea. Interesting. Symbolic of ultimate victory over chaos, perhaps? Hmm. Tells me that whatever you're planning to do in the afterlife, you better get your surfing in now, dude. By the sounds of things. In fact, if you were to pick two chunks of the Old Testament most central to the Hebrew ideas about God and themselves, you'd have to pick creation and the Exodus, Yes. And God's, Yahweh's triumph over the water, believe it or not, is central to them both. In the creation story, what do we see? Next slide, please. Very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
Have you ever thought about that verse before? I know it's uh, many different ways we can look at that verse. A mythological understanding of pre-creation, pre-history. But what's there? I mean, this is before the earth was made. What was there? The waters, the deep. Surely in creation here, we're talking about God subduing chaos and bringing order from chaos. Next slide, please. Just the build. Thank you. Chaos being there pre-creation. Moving on, thinking about Exodus. What is the most dramatic miracle of the Exodus story? The one which is the always biggest showpiece of any film telling the story of the Ten Commandments. We're talking Cecil B. DeMille here. Next slide. Let's put the man up himself without his gun. Oh yes, it's Charlton Heston. What's he doing at this particular point? The big showpiece is the parting of the sea. Waters are a dangerous place. The sea is perilous, full of terror. Mm, Food for thought. Next slide, please. What's the most dangerous occupation in the world today? What is it? Click down. Next slide, please. It is still fishermen. Around 103 per 100,000 fishermen and 52 in every 100,000 merchant seamen die whilst working. Most dangerous occupation, even today. And if you think that's bad, spare a thought for the fishermen of the past. In 1885, the Royal Commission reported that around 10,000 seamen, one in 63, died whilst working at sea. Fear of the sea is not new. Next slide, please. So, for Jesus' disciples, Jesus' command of the sea would have had a profound effect. He walked over the water, he calmed the stormy sea. These were not, as I said at the start, ordinary miracles. The disciples may have seen Jesus doing miracles before, making jugs of wine, healing lepers, delivering evil spirits, but stilling the storm. To the Hebrew mind, that's like Jesus wandering nonchalantly into the reactor core and stopping the Chernobyl reaction with his bare hands. Whoa, what kind of man are we dealing with here? Next slide. That's the reason why I've called this talk Gone Fishing. Hmm. Surely you can't be serious. Well, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. Seriously. That's why Jesus' disciples are completely stunned. This goes beyond healing. This puts Jesus into a different kind of category. This is God's stuff. This is Moses plus. And as Gentiles sitting here in the West End, 2,000 years later, we'd be wise not to underestimate that. The Old Testament promises a future prophet like Moses, and this is not lost on the Gospel writer. Remember, Moses had to use his staff to part the Red Sea, and he had to have his arm held up, didn't he? It took so long. Well, Jesus just says a word, and it's like a mill pond, and it completely blew them away. The kind of power that Jesus has, well... If he contain the waters, the place where the monsters live, well, what does that say about him? What about us? 
Friends, what about us? How does this speak into our hearts and minds today? Next slide, please. My message is a simple one this morning. Jesus has the ultimate authority over chaos and disorder. I can't overstate that. He continues the creative work that God began when his spirit hovered over the waters, bringing order from chaos. He has that power to recreate and renew, and we look to a time when that will be complete. But what about now? How does this part of Jesus' ministry interface with us now? Because we're thinking about the kingdom of God now. For us, for us, when we think about chaos and disorder, it's most likely we're not thinking about the sea. Because we do like to be beside the seaside, don't we? We're British. In fact, one of my favourite things, folks, is one of my favourite things. A windy day down at Brighton. Little bit of rain in the air. Wrapped up warm with a bag of chips. Love it. I love it. What is it for you? Chaos. What, what, what makes you run to Jesus and say, don't you care, we're about to die? Next slide. Where is it for you, that chaotic place? What makes us panic? What is our primal fear? These are things for today, aren't they? I've heard it said before that the heresy of niceness in church life can lead us to bury those things that we're fearful of and we have that fear of sharing with one another, hide them away. When our difficulties beset us like a storm, when we are struggling under a huge burden or we feel there is no way out, chaos reigns, yes? Next slide. What do we do when the storm hits? One thing Jesus never promised was a promise that his followers would have a life with no cares. He doesn't promise that, does he? He does, though, promise his presence with us through every problem. And one thing is for certain, life is not a storm-free path. In fact, if you sign on with Jesus, the chances are they're going to come with your way more often. Because we don't go the way of the world, do we? How do we respond? How do we respond? You know, I love that Psalm 46 that we had earlier. Next slide, please. I love that Psalm that we read together. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. At the end of that psalm, God declares, Be still and know that I am God. Jesus takes on that authority in this miracle. The disciples were scared because they didn't believe it. And they woke him up. How comes you're sleeping, Jesus? Makes me think that was rather deliberately included. God is there even when we can't feel him. And he says to us, as he says to the disciples, do you still have no faith? I think this is gently put. I don't think he's having a go at them here. If you look through Mark's gospel, the disciples are always getting it wrong. 
They're always getting it wrong. I love Mark's gospel because the disciples are always misinterpreting what Jesus is saying. He thinks they're about to lead them. He's going to lead them to revolution over the Romans and an armed conflict. And Jesus is going, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm doing it in a different way. Do you still have no faith? Don't you get it? Haven't you seen what I'm doing? And the encouragement to us is that the disciples were slow on the uptake, like me, like you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Matthew 28, just prior to the ascension. And they're all gathered there on the hill as Jesus is about to go up. And he's there with them. And quite a lot believe. And there's that one line, but some doubted. And you just think, oh my word. He was there. He was there. (laughs) And you still didn't get it. Kind of encouraging to us, isn't it? As we grapple with questions of life and faith. Can we grasp the significance of Jesus' power over all of these things? Next slide, please. Who is this man? They asked it. It's a question that we must all answer. What are you wrestling with today? Because it is a challenge to how we do church, friends, isn't it? Because if we believe that we are exercising Jesus' ministry in the 21st century and we look to Jesus as the blueprint, bringing order from chaos is part of our calling, isn't it? That's a challenge. What does that mean for us in the 21st century? If he has the power to bring order over chaos, we too have that ministry to bring shalom, peace, wholeness, where there is disorder and suffering and grief. We are entrusted with that role. And I don't know about you, I see that as a vital part of our ministry here in London today. We live in an uncertain, chaotic world. Where is peace to be found? Where is authority? Where the authorities seem to be in doubt? Certainly, many of the things which we might have trusted in in the past are up for grabs. We have a denial of the institution. We live in a post-institutional age, post-Christian age. The government doesn't seem to have any authority. The government are under siege. What about us being people of peace? Peace in a world which is in chaos. Next slide, please. Final slide in conclusion. I couldn't speak today without referring to this week. What an awful sight. What a dreadful situation. Agony, suffering, pain. It's brought me great joy to see the response of the church there. But not just the church, people of faith. Yeah? Working together, the community, providing a different narrative, questioning this rich part of town, the haves and the have-nots. Chaos, destruction. I heard it said that this week we believe in a gospel of transformation, not just benevolence. I like that. We're not just about being benevolent, we're being about things being transformed. And that means spiritual, social, 
cultural? Do we have a word for our chaotic world, bringing wisdom, discernment, perspective, truth, justice against a society obsessed with narcissism, individualism, consumerism? I wonder. I know you engage with that at Bloomsbury, and that brings me great joy. I just thought I'd close with some words that my colleague Phil Jump wrote. Phil is the Northwest Baptist Association team leader. He wrote this on Friday, and he's far more better writer than I'll ever be. And he just meditated looking at this scene this week. He challenged us to do likewise. He read from Romans 8, which talks about creation being in bondage to decay. Famous words of the Apostle Paul where we look forward to a final deliverance. Up until that point, creation is groaning until we recognize God will come and set it right. And in the meantime, we wait. We groan inwardly, waiting. And he said this, looking at that passage from Romans. This is Phil's words, not mine. As Christians in the UK gather in coming days, our worship will be overshadowed by the horrific tower block fire that appears to have claimed so many lives in London. We are called to be beacons of hope in the midst of communities throughout the UK that will be shocked, stunned, angry about the events that have unfolded. We all know what it is to feel the sunlight on our faces on a bright summer's day. Its warmth somehow lightens our spirit and gives us energy and life. Yet the same flaming energy that comprises this ball of gases at the centre of our solar system can engulf a building in minutes, destroying everything its path in a truly terrifying and devastating way. In this simple and yet deadly contrast, we see the groans of creation which was made to be good, turned into a distorted monster of danger and destruction. As tears are wept, hearts break, while anger and disbelief spews out in torrents of words and actions, where spirits are crushed by immeasurable anguish, we who are part of this damaged creation add to its groaning. And the spirit's response is not to tell us to pull ourselves together, compose quiet platitudes or calmly carry on, Words alone will never plumb the depths of despair, fear and anger of those who are shattered by these events. But prayers are more than words alone. And the spirit who witnesses the deepest groanings of God's creation captures the cries of broken hearts and offers their lament before the throne of our creator. Hope is never lost. For the day will come when creation's groaning will cease and her renewal will be fulfilled. But as we wait, our task is not providing one of explanations, imposing words, or generating spiritual distractions. Rather, it is to provide the space where the groans of a shattered creation can be heard and assuring those who yet still struggle to find any words that the anguish of their hearts is the only prayer they need to offer. May God help us all in our task. Amen. Let's just have a moment of silence as we reflect, as we pray, as we bring ourselves, our own chaotic lives to God, as we ask him to come again to us anew, as we offer our world, our world in pain to him. Let's just bow our heads before we join together in song.